0: That's living hell. This is what real hope looks like. This is the, the word that those hopeless people need to hear. This is the word that 3,000 people that try to commit suicide today, the 3,000 that will try to commit to tomorrow, 3,000 that will try to commit on Monday. This is the word that they need to hear, is that there is hope. This real
1: superpower, that's hope, that's hope. That's hope.
0: Let
1: me help. Go
0: to. <laughs> Welcome to victims and villains. My goodness, that is so hard. She did that super so perfectionist.
1: And you you, oh, you, you stop that. You don't. You don't do that <laughs> again. No. <gasps> That is, it is difficult. Entire sentences and scenes in that voice.
0: Unbelievable. <laughs> she, uh, so we're talking, of course, about the new Jordan Peele film called it, uh, Us. And we are going to unpack this film in just a little bit and just foreclosure right up front. We, there is so much in this film that we probably will be doing. Uh, more episodes than just this one. This one will just basically be the initial review. Uh, Both of us just got out of this film. And before we jump into that, please tell me, you've already heard him, but it's Mr. Dan Rockwood.
1: (laughs) Thank you. This movie was um, such a delight. It feels weird to say that uh, based on the emotional journey that we just went through. But um, yeah, go see this movie it's uh it's jordan peele's second um directorial debut and uh i really enjoyed get out i think that's a very solid very good movie um this movie i like way way better and that's not to say that get out was bad by any means but this movie just as a horror film and as a standalone story i think came together so well
0: absolutely i i adored this film this film i think was so like backstory i saw get out a little bit after it had come out in theaters i missed it during its initial theatrical run and everyone kept talking about how good this that movie was and i was like you gotta kid me like the the guy that just put out a a, a movie about him going undercover as a gangster to recover his cat and keanu key peel mad tv this guy put out a horror movie And I was so pleasantly surprised by how wrong I was. It's such an excellent layered film. And when he would just drop little hints of what Us was going to be without knowing the premise, it immediately became my most anticipated film of this year. And my wife and I, we were actually exchanging Christmas gifts when the trailer dropped. And she's opening a gift. I was like, you have to stop right now. I have to watch this trailer. And I watched it on repeat for like two or three minutes, just continuously wouldn't stop. I would just keep. And this film, beautiful in every sense of the word. This is what a movie going experience should be. It's 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 funny. It's horrific. It's intelligent. And I can't wait to really unpack it. But I think we would be doing a huge disservice as a somewhat of a pop culture uh, podcast take that back we would be doing a huge disservice as a pop culture podcast if we did not address this historical merger that just happened between disney and fox so before we get into us we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what what we're excited about and just kind of our general initial thoughts on this merger because as of March 20th, 2019, after a year and a half of negotiations, governments, and so on and so forth, the deal is officially finalized. All of Fox's library is now Disney's library, and vice versa. Dan, uh, open this, open this pit up, man. What do you think of the, What What are your thoughts on this, this
1: merger being finalized? Well, ever since I first heard about it, I've honestly been really excited. And I know there are a lot of people who don't share those sentiments. Uh, oh, Disney is a big evil corporation. They're taking everything up. This is now a major media monopoly. Um, and I get that. I think that it's um, it, it can be dangerous in a lot of ways. And we might see in some ways some lack of, of creativity and competition there. But at the same time, I'm a big Disney fan. I've liked a lot of what they've done, not just with their animated films, but with everything from Pirates of the Caribbean to what's going on with Marvel to what they've been doing with Star Wars, not to mention their theme parks around the world. Um, I think they bring joy to a lot of people. And because of that, it's hard for me to have any kind of negative feelings. Uh, But specifically with this merger, and um, I'm not an expert in in who owns what or how this is going to work, but I do know that um, 21st Century Fox uh, for a very long time has owned the distribution rights to Star Wars, which is why we have not seen a genuine uh, re-release that hasn't been altered or edited in either the 1997 special editions or in the 2004 DVD remakes, um, or re-releases rather, and Uh, Fox has held on to those rights and so Disney was never able to publish them. So I'm thinking with this merger, we may be able to see Disney finally come out and do something in some home Blu-ray or 4K release of the original trilogy, perhaps in its uh, unspecialized, uncut theatrical versions. Um, that's the first thing that I'm excited about. The second thing I'm excited about is that you're now able to merge these Marvel properties. Um, Whether or not they're going to do that remains to be seen, but now you have X-Men and Deadpool and the MCU kind of all under (laughs) one roof. So I'm really looking forward to see what they do there. Um, I'm hoping we get to see these franchises finally be brought in together, Um, but we will definitely kind of see from there so i'm pretty excited with it it was a huge historic deal it was 71.3 billion dollars uh when disney bought star wars back in 2012 from george lucas it was a four billion dollar deal um so this is many 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 times more than that and of course they are acquiring much more Um, when you just look at the sheer uh, library that they now have access to. It's everything from the Alien movies to The Simpsons um, and and so much more. So, um, all that being said, I'm excited. I think we're going to see some really cool stuff. I think with Disney Plus launching later in 2019, we are going to get um, a major, major player in the online streaming services. I think if Disney plays their cards right, uh, it could be one of the best places for movies um, streaming wise, because they have such a huge, huge library to pull from, uh, just with their own Disney properties, but now with 21st Century Fox as well. So I think it's going to be a good thing. I think, uh, as consumers, we're going to get to see a lot of really cool, great stuff come out of this. Um, and I hope it's a good thing for everyone involved. The negatives, uh, there are going to be a number of job losses, unfortunately, for the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, the latest report from IGN I read said that uh, up to 4,000 jobs are expected <sighs> to be cut. Um, and that's just what's coming through now. I'm sure eventually there will be more. Um, so, of course, my sympathy goes out to those people, their families. And, and I know that it's going to be a tough time for a lot of people to... Um, so I, you know, I, I wish everyone the best, and I hope that uh, all the negative that comes out of this will be able to be turned into positive, that those people will be able to pursue um, you know, different creative pursuits and, and fulfilling careers in, at other venues. Um, but uh, yeah, whenever anything like this happens, there's definitely some, some sadness and some loss as well. But I'd say overall, I have pretty positive feelings about it. And I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Um, what are some of your thoughts, Josh?
0: I I really agree with a lot of the things you said. I think that Disney is just now this conglomerate that we that they've they've you know you look at the way that they approach Star Wars, it basically putting you know amazing talents like Ryan Johnson and the Game of Thrones creators who have their own trilogy in the works. Then you also have J.J. Abrams, who did the Star Trek franchise and has done so many more. You you look at just how they have kind of put these people into place, and it makes me optimistic for the future of maybe an alien-predator shared universe, because I, I feel like Fox for this for so long basically only made like alien covenant and prometheus because they they wanted it a way to they they basically were looking for that that franchise and a lot of even with the predator while i still it still had his really strong moments for me i still felt like it wasn't as strong as like some of the other entries into that franchise and same with Covenant Prometheus it's it's widely divided between people uh, and i think now with them having the ability to go back into these properties maybe put someone in head of it that you can draw huge talent and and really kind of bring redemption to those those franchises i'm kind of curious to see how it's going to affect um other other fox franchises uh, most notably the simpsons because i'm such a i'm a huge simpsons fan it's probably one of my if not my favorite show of all time and you know one of the arguments that i hear a lot of people say you know it's only the first 10 seasons were good but if you really still watch some of the more modern seasons, like the more modern seasons are almost homages to the first 10 seasons. Like there's a lot, there's still a lot of good stuff within these modern seasons. So I'm I'm almost kind of curious how much longer the Simpsons is going to be breathing life because it's going on. It's on the 30th year right now and they just got signed for 31 and 32 season, uh, seasons 31, 32, blah, and so I'm kind of curious at what point D, or what point Disney is going to kind of pull the plug on them uh, if we're going to get a other big screen uh, Simpsons film because they, they had announced that. They had announced a Bob's Burgers movie at one point. And that, I believe, is actually scheduled for a release for next year. So I'm kind of curious how that's going to affect stuff that's already in the mix. And I actually read an article about X-Men and like Fantastic Four basically being brought into the DC or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Bob Iger, who is the head of Disney said that, you know, we could see them as early as 2021, but it would really basically be Kevin Feige. I think what they're trying to do right now is I think that they're trying to say, all right, we've just spent the entire, the, the entire you know, last 11 years building up the cinematic universe to lead to end game. And the infinity saga is now being completed. Where do we go with next? Kevin Feige has gone on record saying that after far from home, you won't really see a whole lot of Marvel movies for a while. We're hearing whispers of a black widow movie scheduled for next year, but we don't know anything for phase four. We know that Brie Larson signed seven, um, film deal, and she's already going to be two films into it this year, so she still has five films left, so it really begs the question kind of where does that franchise go, and don't know if you knew this or not, but Bob Iger said that the only character of the current current version of the X-Men characters that we have cinematically now will all be recast, with the exception of Deadpool. That I did not hear about, huh. Yeah. So I I thought that was kind of interesting that and kind of hopeful for me because I think that, you know, with this historical merger coming in, I I, we've been saying this since our Stanley episode. Replace the Stanley cameos with Deadpool cameos like (laughs) you don't even have to have Ryan Reynolds in the actual physical suit. You can have a, a stunt double and just have Ryan Reynolds voice him it's all possible to make that happen and so i think in the comics he's just that kind of guy where he can just randomly pop in for a couple can pop in for a panel or two crack a joke and then he's gone and so it cinematically it makes sense so i'm almost kind of curious if that's their game plan kind of moving forward uh but I, i'm I'm optimistic for a lot of these properties, like the Alien, the, uh, the Alien, the Predator, and the obviously the the MCU. I think is a, is a huge win for Marvel fans to kind of get all of these properties under the same roof.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just from a, a fan perspective, we're going to see some really incredible things um you know the past uh 11 years we've been very spoiled especially comic fans have been very spoiled um i think we're going to be able to see more of that moving forward and there will be more cohesion between these different universes which i'm pretty excited about absolutely and it- to know that we're only a couple years away because you know
0: this just being finalized, like we're we're recording literally the day after this has all been finalized. But fans have been you know really speculating for a while of you know what we're gonna see first. I think that I and it, from what I've heard of the 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 Dark Phoenix trailer, it looks like there's like supposed to be a like the climax of the film is like ending like literally killing the entire rendition these current cinematic versions of the x-men characters so if that's the case and this deal went through to where we set up to where we can introduce new versions of these characters i think it's a really smart play but again i think it's it's really early to kind of see what's going to come next
1: I agree. I mean, when um, Disney bought Star Wars, we saw a lot of announcements kind of right away. Things sort of trickled through as that was going on. Um, That deal happened in 2012. We didn't see The Force Awakens till the end of 2015. Uh, So I'm thinking it could be a couple of years at least before we start to see some of the big overarching uh, ramifications of this come through. but that being said, this uh, that time is going to go by real fast, I think. And before we know it, we'll start seeing how, um, you know, just how much power and control Disney has now and and where a lot of these stories will be able to go. It is worth noting, too, that when you
0: log on to Disney's official site there, uh, I saw this on a secondhand article, so. I didn't physically go to the site, but the header of the article or the header of Disney now, now, now has avatar, the Simpsons, Deadpool, and one other like Fox property that they now own. So (laughs) they are, they're quickly making the, the, I think the adjustments to kind of this big thing, but I think one thing that's really going to uh, hold a lot of people off. I think I think we'll get the Marvel properties quicker than we will a lot of these other properties mm-hmm. uh, just simply because there's already an established apartment at Disney for those properties. But I think a lot of more maybe original films or like properties like you know Prometheus or... Uh, I don't know why I keep saying Prometheus. Alien or Predator... I think, you know, and uh, Avatar, I think a lot of those other properties, you're not going to see or hear about for a couple years simply because you're going to have a lot of, like you had said previously, like a lot of like the, the merge means a lot of layoffs because you don't need... You know, you just basically need one studio, so if you have one executive in charge of this person and this department, you don't need that same one from Fox. So while our thoughts and prayers do go, go out to those, I think it's going to be a lot of kind of reorganize, reorganizing and really minute details that's really going to hold us from kind of getting these properties on cinematically for quite some time
1: absolutely yeah totally agree
0: all right well let us know in the comments below wherever you guys are listening to this podcast or you guys can write to us on any of our social media what you guys think about the disney fox merger if you guys are excited or if you guys are grumpy what you guys want to see first let us know uh but more importantly if you or someone you know is struggling with suicide addiction self-harm or depression please reach out Suicide's currently the tenth leading cause of death in the United States. There are a hundred and twenty-nine suicides that take place each and every day. And when you scale back internationally, there are eight hundred thousand successful suicides. That's one death every forty seconds. So if you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out. You guys can reach out to us on any of our social media. You guys can call the Suicide Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You can text anonymously to 741-741. Please, every breath you take is so precious and so amazing. Please stay with us. And with that, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Victims and Villains. I got some coffee during our commercial break, so hopefully... I am no longer tripping over my tongue because we're getting ready to get into spoilers for us, the new Jordan Peele film. So if you guys have not seen it yet, make sure that you guys hit pause on this podcast player. Run to your local cinemas. Go check it out. And with that, we are entering into spoiler territories. So, Dan, where do you want to start, my friend?
1: I think th- this movie, you know, when we do a lot of these movies, we we kind of jump around. We talk about themes, we talk about other things. I think this movie is is honestly the best way to approach it is to just try to go chronologically through <laughs> through the plot of the film and just kind of break <laughs> it down because there's so so much so much here and so much uh, calls back and and there's so many things that the the storytelling is just really well done um i think uh i mean the 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 movie opens right and it's it's text on a screen which i was not expecting uh i was not expecting that and it talks about how there are thousands of miles of tunnels underneath the united states and when i first read that i thought about Like conspiracy theories is my first thought of, like, oh man, like these, like, underground, like, go there. Yeah, well, I I watch a lot of weird documentaries, man, and and one of them is is like how military bases across the country are connected, you know, could be connected underground with high speed like maglev systems, and and government buildings uh, being connected, and and all this crazy stuff. Uh, So that was where my mind instantly went, and then it talked about oh, abandoned subways and mine shafts, and I was like, oh yeah, there, there are a bunch of legitimate um things i think there was a discovery channel or or maybe it was a a history channel show a cities of the underworld that was on years ago and they would um basically specialize in that where you would go to a major metropolitan area i know they did a bunch of episodes in manhattan and they would go underneath the streets and you would just see all the crazy stuff that is under there abandoned that no one ever really gets to see um So it talks about these tunnels underneath uh, the United States and then the movie just kind of opens and um, you're left kind of thinking back to those opening words because it's not clear for a little while what that means, why the movie opened with that. Um, But of course we are introduced to our main character. This is a, a young Adelaide Wilson played by Madison Curry and we see her parents who are... Ah, uh, not doing too well. They don't seem to be in a very happy relationship. Um, definitely not in a very loving relationship. And while the father gets uh, sucked into a game of whack-a-mole, um, you know, young uh, Adelaide walks off um, onto the beach in Santa Cruz and comes across this uh, house of mirrors, which for some yeah. reason has no staff, no uh, security, nothing whatsoever. And it's this jealous. is where we encounter her doppelganger for the first time, and with you know no explanation, really, no dialogue uh, from Adelaide's character. The, this is how our movie opens, and, and this is kind of what we're we're left with as we're getting into this um, you know strange, terrifying universe that Jordan Peele is uh, building for us. So there's two
0: there's two things and and I think we're going to come back to the the subways at some point but there's kind of two things opening up that that sets up these reoccurring themes throughout the film within these first few shots and the first being there is so as she's as she's wandering off, off away from dad you basically have this man that she passes and like the, the whole idea of passing someone with like a sign that says like the end is nigh or, you know, the, the apocalypse is now or, you know, just like, just like these like doomsday, like people like holding up cardboard signs. Like it's not something that you really like you think about, I I guess like with a lesser extent because We've seen it in so many films, I think, so many films in so many different mediums. I definitely think that Watchmen is definitely the the prime example of that where, you know, Rorschach, when he's unmasked, he's the guy throughout the entire comic book, throughout the entire film that is just standing on the street corner and he's just holding a sign that says the end is nigh. Yeah.
1: And so... I, I love that. Like, I love how in, in the comic and the movie, like, you you don't, you know, he's not unmasked until... Uh, much, much later, and then you can go back and see, like, oh, he's been in so many of these panels just in the background.
0: Yeah, so we we meet this guy who he just looks like almost like he can be a throwaway character until the characters arrive in present day back to Santa Cruz, and they're loading up this guy, the same guy that's holding this sign, this is Jeremiah 1111, and he is now in the back of a ambulance, and so, you know, she she makes that connection, and I, I was curious throughout the entire film, because, like, he just kept coming back up, and he kept coming back up, so Jeremiah eleven eleven basically says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them, that they cannot escape, though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them, and, like, some, like, history and context is basically... Jeremiah was a young prophet who God gave visions to uh, about him basically bringing the like this disaster upon his people because he had made this covenant with with them to be their god and for him to basically be the, uh for the the Israel and like the tribes of Israel to be his people. And basically what happens is throughout their journey from the, the time of the establishment of the covenant to what we meet here in Jeremiah, they kind of have these on again, off again relationships with other, you know, and handmade gods and God gets jealous and he's basically just trying to get their attention. So I just kind of thought that it, it's really it adds a layer of depth to this when you when you look at what this guy is holding, and the symbolism that that he gives, and the the history that surrounds the the book of Jeremiah when you're looking at it, and also two at the same time, eleven eleven is very popular in modern culture to mean make a wish, and so. 1111, so when we see this guy in different variations, he always has the 1111 in his forehead, and so we kind of find out at the end that uh, Lupita's character has, you know, was the was the doppelganger the whole time, so she's trying to basically make the wish to kind of get these bring the the tethering as they're called in the film
1: to the surface i want to break down the scene that you mentioned because it it really bothered me uh when they're loading that guy into the ambulance and i spent several years working on ambulance and so here's my problem they're going they're driving along and they see him being pulled out on on the stretcher And again, for me, I've seen this hundreds of times. So to me, like it's just like, okay, like business as usual, carry on. Uh, And the kids are like, oh, man, like, is he dead? And in my head, I'm like, no, he's not dead. If he was dead, they'd call the medical examiner. They wouldn't call an ambulance. Um, And if he was dead or in danger of dying, they would be actively working him, uh, performing CPR and doing other such things. And they wouldn't just be like calmly bringing him out and loading him into the truck to basically bring him to a hospital or wherever he's going. Um, but nope, turns out he's he's dead or at least close to death. And they show him, and he's just there, and and they're not really doing anything. And he's got some blood on him. And that scene for me was just a moment because I I don't know what it is about Hollywood with things like this that whenever somebody dies and they need to take a corpse away, they bring in an ambulance. And that's not how that works. It is actually <laughs> it is it is literally against the law to transport a corpse in an ambulance. It is a public health uh, issue. And so you bring the medical examiner and a body bag and a specialized uh, truck or van that they have, and they are then allowed to transport. You cannot do that in an ambulance. Um, now, if someone has died recently and you are in the process of working that person to try to get their heart beating again and trying to get them breathing again, that's a different situation. But if someone has been deceased and they've called it and they just need to be transported away from wherever they had died, uh, that is the medical examiner's responsibility, not the EMTs or the paramedics. Um, I myself have had to call the medical examiner on at least a couple of occasions uh, and deal with it where uh, there was a person had passed um, previously, uh, a, you know, a decent amount of time has passed. Um, there were definitive signs of them passing. There was nothing that we could do clinically to help. Uh, and at that point it is a, a police issue. It is a, a medical examiner issue. Um, so with that aside, uh, I do like that, um, how that character kind of came in. And I appreciate talking to you here now. I didn't have the chance to look up what Jeremiah 1111 was. I wasn't really sure what uh, that was referring to. And you also helped me click that when Lupita sees the clock is 1111 and she kind of freaks out and gets nervous. And again, in my head, I'm like, oh, like, like, make a wish. Like, this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Like, 1111 is a happy time. Uh, I now understand why she was so upset. And with... Uh, She's talking about she mentions these coincidences that keep happening while they're at the beach and um, while they're on this little vacation. And she's starting to get really, really nervous. And uh, she says to Gabe at one point, like, I think these coincidences mean that this person that I met uh, who looked exactly like me, I think it means that she's getting closer and that she wants something. And I don't think it's a it's a good thing that this is happening
0: yeah and i so like right after you know we're we're kind of introduced to this family, the title sequence is a really unique one, and i I kind of didn't think anything of it until we got back into kind of the underground world of the the home of the tethering you don't really understand the the whole significance of the white rabbit. And so the the white rabbit basically this is another thing that I did research on quickly as I was waiting for the credits to finish basically is uh and this is just from a simple quote I will from Cora and I probably said that wrong but basically it says quote the white rabbit is in my opinion probably one of the richest metaphors in Uh, philosophy first the white rabbit is always running after time always late regardless of how fast he runs he keeps running late this symbolism the human condition prisoner of time day after day and a life itself bound to lose around lose against its fight against the passing of time and end with death look up to the myth of Sisyphus, who rolls a stone up a hill only for it to toll toll down every night i guess I'm supposed to say roll down every night my bad
1: <laughs> that's uh, okay i remember um, they
0: literally say toll down for more <laughs> symbolism so
1: there's that i i remember um learning about that story in the philosophy classes that i took in college and um i think it's important to remember as well that uh You know, if you follow the White Rabbit, you meet Trinity and then get to go to the Matrix or or leave the Matrix. Um, That's another thing to remember, some symbolism there. Uh, Yeah, the title sequence was so bizarre and interesting and i have a weird problem where i like to count things sometimes uh and so the whole time like as a camera zooming out i'm just counting all the rabbits there are 55 rabbits in that opening sequence by the way um and it's it was just it, it was like almost alarming like it was multiple minutes of just a camera slowly panning out on a wall of cages of rabbits uh and it was something that i definitely had not really seen in in movies uh at all
0: so if you and as as the camera pans
1: out it's not while it,
0: the majority of the film does focus on white rabbits it also expands to other like other rabbits as well there's a couple brown ones in there there's a Mm -hmm. orange one if i remember correctly and so the rabbit also as well as the hare has been associated with moon deities and may actually uh, signify rebirth or resurrection which is basically the the mission of the tethering was that they wanted to let the people know that hey we exist like uh, like adelaide says you know the variation of her from the tethering as she's cutting it up you know we we're just like you we're human too and she's kind of explaining the history of the this underground tunnel and and how they ended up there and she's like you know like we we have emotion like we bleed like you know the only the only problem with us is that we don't have a soul and so, you know, the idea of a rebirth or a resurrection, it, it, it makes sense in line with what they were doing. Uh, but it also symbolizes the, the rabbits are also symboli- symbols of fertility, sensuality, and have also been uh, mm. depictions of hunting and spring scenes in the labors of the months. That I did not know. I didn't know that either until just kind of reading it, but it's it's one of those layers that like it, like if you look at the title sequence or you look at just kind of like the random rabbits that exist, you really wouldn't think anything of them. And I think that that's one thing I really appreciate about Jordan Peele films are that there's so much layers. There is that everything is is in there for a reason. And I read a, an interview today as i was compiling the the structure for the show notes on our website and he basically said in an interview with Mashable everything in this film is deliberate so basically everything that you are seeing in us
1: has a reason for being there nice um i uh, i had was looking forward to that because i know from seeing Get Out, I feel like there were a lot of other very purposeful uh, symbolic moments in that movie and and really like more subtleties that that you could pick up on. Um, I liked uh, for me (laughs) that this movie had a lot of um, resemblances uh, to Shaun of the Dead, weirdly enough. And I think the the first one that really called to mind was when uh, the son Jason comes out. When they're in the house and he goes, oh, there's a there's a family in the driveway. Uh, And it just reminds me of Nick Frost uh, going, there's a girl in the garden. Um, But they look out and sure enough, there's a family in the driveway. And uh, so Gabe, who um, played by uh, Winston Duke, who was M'Baku in Black Panther, So very happy to see him uh, in this role and in a a very different type of role than Umbaku. But uh, he goes out to try and and calmly and professionally deal with this problem. There's no response. He goes back in. Uh, He says to to call the police. Lapita's already calling the police and he gets his baseball bat and he goes goes back. And then that's where things kind of go crazy. Um, I do have a quote here from um, Winston Duke, who played Gabe Wilson, uh, and he said in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, um, this is in regards to Jordan Peele was actually hesitant to cast him because they wanted someone who could be vulnerable and who you would be scared for, and someone who is as jacked and big and muscular and masculine as Umbaku was. uh, You would not necessarily feel that way. And so what Winston Duke said was, I was in conversation for a lot of roles in which the character was a fighter, a big guy. He's aggressive, a warrior. I loved playing Umbaku, but that's not who I am. I want to convey the full spectrum of masculinity. I want people to say that this guy helped change the definition of masculinity on screen 40 years from now. I'm trying to be that person. And mm-hmm. I think in Us, he definitely has a really good uh, um, method of of kind of breaking into that role where he does sort of take on that, that alpha male type role and where he's confident and strong and he wants to take care of his family. But Adelaide Wilson, uh, Lupita Nyong'o's character, she really is the driving force of this movie. And when there's a lot of, uh, you know, major action scenes or when there are decisions to be made, she's the one that's really, um, you know, putting. Uh, making these decisions and, and making the action happen. Uh, but seeing Winston Duke's character in this film, I think was, was really well done. And I just really enjoyed his personality, especially we're in the car and they're going over the kill count. And he goes, no, I, I have the biggest kill count because I had to kill myself and then I had to kill Josh. So I, I killed two um, and just little moments of that. I really, really enjoyed. So I, I think they did a really great casting choice with him. He,
0: I, I loved him. Like he is, is the gentleman that I will probably say in 2019, he is my cinematic spirit animal because he was so strong and like so solidly like when he had to be, but yet he's like this like really goofy and like really corny guy for like the majority of it. And like, I think, I think when he when you're looking at oh, it's eleven eleven right now. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think when when uh, Adelaide is telling him about you know this secret that she had held on to all these years, and he just kind of breaks the tension. He's like, well, I mean, you were in a house of mirrors. Like, don't you think that? you saw your reflection and like, it's just kind of one of those moments that like, no matter how tense the scene was, like he could be strong, but then he could, he had really good comedic timing, which I think with get out, you didn't really see a lot of like Jordan Peele's like comedic background, But I feel like with this one, you definitely, it was a lot more intense and more layered but it's also a lot more comedic with this role and I think Winston Duke playing him like Winston Duke stole the show for me when see it's like it's really weird because like I feel like uh, Lapita Nuano and Winston Duke like I feel like they're both like so exquisite in this film and they both kind of like are constantly neck and neck for who stole the show but it, just the, there are so many times where he just laughed. Um, And I think one of the funniest scenes is after he gets done brushing his teeth and he just kind of comes into the bedroom and he's just like trying to like get into like the perfect position to, you know, make the magic happen as he as he called it was just it's like this, like really solidly like throwaway moment. But it's so
1: funny. And and that bed is so tiny (laughs) with him. Sitting on it, like that was the funniest part. (laughs) Like they're gonna share that bed; it's barely big enough for
0: him. (laughs) And then there's there's another scene at the end where he, she's like getting ready to walk out of the car as she walks towards Pluto, and he just kind of he's like, wait, and he like tries to kiss her, and she's like, come on, like. That's something that I would do, like, in the face of Armageddon. Like, I would just be like—my wife would be, like, super serious, and I would just be like, I'll be serious in one moment. I just need a kiss first.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I was going into this movie, uh, I love the whole standoff moment with him with the baseball bat, and I feel like that's a pretty— common thing that we see in a lot of these movies is the character will grab whatever weapon for self-defense they have readily available and we see it in this movie with a baseball bat we see it with a fire poker Um, going into this movie and not knowing too much about what was going on i said here's the thing if there's some kind of supernatural element to this if there's some form of of invincibility or healing that they can get up and recover from wounds, I think that in some ways would make it more terrifying. Um, If this is a situation where they are just as vulnerable as we are and they can be killed just as easily as we are and you could solve the entire problem in the driveway if just one of them had a gun or something like that, then for me, the the movie, it's not that it makes it less scary, but it gives me confidence that, okay, if this happened in real life, they are just as vulnerable as humans, they would not have any real advantage over us except for that element of surprise. But I feel like once we figured out what was going on uh, between uh, private gun owners and police and you know, the military uh, this thing would get shut down pretty quickly. Um, But I liked seeing that um, how after that moment happens and they start breaking into the house. That's when, you know, things kind of become real. And that's when it becomes really terrifying for me, especially when they're in the house, because you feel so vulnerable and, and claustrophobic in that moment, um, as these people are just breaking in. And then, uh, you know, evil Lupita has that speech, which you referenced where she's basically explaining who they are and, and why they're here and what's going on, um, where there are these shadows and you have no choice because of what uh, you know, the people on the surface are doing, and so to her, she's been a slave her entire life, and now she's wanting to break out of this and and have some independence, and and that's what's going on.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm yeah, so I'm really happy with the kind of the depth that this this film brings, and I think too when you're also. The the opening of this film opening in 1986, and I thought it was kind of interesting to go uh, with Hands Across Hands Across America, which was a this is right from Wikipedia, uh, was a benefit Events and publicity campaign staged on Sunday, May twenty fifth, nineteen eighty six, which approximately six point five million people held hands in a human chain for fifteen minutes along a path across the contiguous con- the United States. <laughs> contiguous. That word. Uh, many participants donated $10 to reserve their spot in line. The proceeds went to local charities to fight hunger and homelessness and help those in poverty. In order to allow the maximum number of people to participate, the link, the path linked many cities and uh, mean, meanerdered back and forth within the cities. I. Just as, just as there were sections where the quote-unquote line was six to ten people deep, there were also undoubtedly many breaks in the chain. However, enough people participated that if an average of all the participates had been taken and spread evenly along the route, spreading four feet apart, in unbroken chain among the 48 contiguous states would have been formed, so they raised thirty four point uh, thirty four million dollars, uh, but only fifteen, only about fifteen dollars, according to the New York Times, was distributed after the operating costs and stuff like that. So this also broke a lot of uh, protests, and I think a lot of people uh, just kind of doing really quick research on it. Kind of they talked about it, it failing as an initiative and i just kind of think it's interesting that that has such a huge part in the the climax of the film and when you go back to the 1111 11 gentleman who is on the beach with jason you just kind of see him foreshadowing that and it's now this big part of this process and it's it's the it's Like, basically, Red's grand plan to kind of, like, show the world who they are. And, you know, something like uh, Live Aid or or Hands Across America, these really big things that are – these really big events that are almost cinematic in their planning that – They get their attention every single time, and so I'm just—it's—it's interesting that that is kind of the area that they go for to basically say, "Hey, world, we are the tethering. Here we are."
1: I think you're right. the The finale of this movie was basically live aid. They just didn't have Freddie Mercury, so it, it was a little different. But that's uh, you know very very similar to the climax of Bohemian Rhapsody in in a lot of ways. Um, I, uh, I I'm happy you looked that up because I was actually wondering as I was watching this movie was what you know was his hands across America a, a real event and if it was. How would this work? Because the U.S. is so complicatedly laid out in terms of trains and roads and mountains and lakes and rivers, and how would you be able to extend a chain coast to coast? Um, so I, I saw the uh, I, I looked at the same Wikipedia page you did, and they have um, the map of the different cities where a lot of this took place and how they were able to kind of link these cities together and all of these people coming together for it. Uh, and honestly, I think it's a cool thing. Like I, I kind of wish people would do something like that today. Like the, something big, a, a grand gesture that we would be able to see, um, that would just be really cool. And if we were able to raise money or awareness for, uh, a worthy cause, I think that's even better. um, uh, with this, uh, I want to say that one of the things I really, really enjoyed in this movie was when Gabe was being dragged out of the house and after he had been attacked. And I kept waiting for that moment where he was going to get his head bashed in with the baseball bat. And I kept waiting and waiting. And then he was able to put up a fight and, you know, he escapes to a boat. And then and uh, later he's able to escape to a different boat and he you know fires that um, that flare gun and and that doesn't work at all, so then he has to fight more. Um, I kept waiting just to see horrible violence happen to him. and we didn't see that. What we did end up seeing was the daughter. I think her name was Zora. Uh, she, when she enters the Tyler's house, and she's going through, and she confronts one of the daughters and kills one of them. Um, she goes into this like fit of blind rage, and we see this raw animalistic violence that up until now we were expecting from the the tether, the shadows. Uh, but it's coming from one of our heroes, and she's just so fed up and, and so much adrenaline, and she's just wailing on this body with a golf club. And that moment for me was really the turning point in this story of, okay, these people are no longer being hunted. They are now taking back control, and they are fighting really hard. Uh, And I love that, just that shift. Um, Predator also does that really well, where Predator is, is hunting Arnold Schwarzenegger and the other commandos throughout the film. And then by the end, they trade places where Arnold learns what his weaknesses are. And now it's Arnold hunting the Predator. And the Predator is the one that's just like blindly shooting into the jungle um, and not being able to hit anything. So it's cool to me when you have these kind of power play shifts between the characters.
0: Absolutely. And that was always kind of something that With that ending, I I don't know if – like, I don't – I don't know if if I really understood that ending, uh, like, or I appreciate the ending the way that I should or if it just kind of was like a – felt like a cop-out. But that aside, like, I definitely think that, you know, when you are – especially with the uh, Gabe's character – I think the first time that he goes to kill, like it's it, you—you kind of do what you have to in order to survive. And there's just something that kind of takes over, like you know, the the tethering people, this family of Red Abraham and you know Umbre Pluto. Like they are—they are driven by this desire to to be known to be heard because they have been living in the shadows their whole life and that's kind of the introduction that we have to these people of you know they are basically shadow people and they're they're wanting to be you know heard and then you kind of have Gabe where he's his demeanor almost throughout the entire course of the film up until the the boat scene where he actually kills his doppelganger abraham is very reminiscent of just like a very easy chill like just someone that you know would just tell too many dad jokes like that's just the kind of guy that he is and you know he's just very humorous and he would do anything for his family and we we kind of see that you know that length that he goes to and i think that you also get that to where you know they they're on their mission they'll go to any lengths and you know there's an evolution to this family that they will go through any lengths to to it as well and adelaide you see that too when she has to kill one of the twins and you know jason walks in on him and she's just kind of like you know all right let's go and just, it, it was a good, it, they they told the evolution of those characters really well and just kind of really made it realistic. Like, what would you do if if it came to you having to protect your family?
1: Mm-hmm. I love how it's uh, the son, um, Jason, who kind of opens up everyone's eyes after they go through all of these problems. And he says, how many of these, are there, and then it clicks like, "Hey, we should turn on the news." And they turn on the news, and what I wasn't expecting was, "Hey, this is a nationwide problem where there are millions of these." And we first get our our first hint of that when we see the Tyler's doppelgangers like appear out of nowhere, um, and that was really surprising to me. I did not see that coming. And then we see that it's this this huge, huge issue, and that is. Really, my my only logistical problem with this movie, and I mentioned it before, it's that there is so much death and destruction and everything happening. And I just don't think that would happen in in the United States in that way, just because there are so many people ready to defend themselves uh, lethally if they need to. Um, that I don't think whether it's a a zombie apocalypse or, or, uh, you know, the shadows coming out and the tethered coming out and, and, attacking, um, between the, the police, the military, and just private citizens who are ready to go to war at a second's notice. Um, I just don't believe that this would, this amount of, of violence and destruction would take place in that way without significant casualties on the other side of it. Um, but with that being said, we do see that it's this this major problem, and we do start to see glimpses of them holding hands and joining hands and forming human chains, and we're not sure why at this point what's going on, but we're able to see that this is now way more than just um, this one family do- dealing with this problem, which is something that I was thinking uh, up through this process, was that, okay, this family is is clearly connected in some way but I thought it was just them and I think a lot of horror movies really do it in that way where you can have something that is overarching to affect everybody but it really only affects one specific person Um, how many times is Laurie Strode going to go up against uh, Michael Myers you know when he could be terrorizing so many other people Uh, that's what killers tend to do but uh, it's was a really cool scene for me when you're starting to see that wow this is a much larger scale than what we were anticipating and now it's like how do we deal with this because even if they go somewhere else like there isn't really anywhere that's safe for them anymore
0: yeah and i, I i'm also kind of you know with that too i think that so let me let me ask you a question uh poking holes into your logistic sure let's let's say that you randomly someone randomly shows up to your house and it's another dan would you wouldn't you be like caught off guard or would you like immediately like just not process it and just go immediately for your you know immediately
1: for a weapon well, after seeing this movie, that's exactly what I would do. <laughs> the, I can't, that, that was the big lesson I took away. It was, all right, if I ever see myself, I guess that one needs to die. One of us is only going to live. So, uh, no, I think, you know, this brings into a lot of interesting situations, and I, I think it's very simple and I'm, I'm not making any claims of how I would personally react in this situation because the reality is I don't know. Uh, I've been very fortunate that I have not come face to face with a doppelganger that wants to kill me or kidnap me. That's been uh, been very fortunate in that way. Um, but no, I think if you were to see yourself, there would be a lot of questions. There would be a lot of apprehension. Uh, I do think that if This situation played out in the way that it played out with them, where you have this group of people that's just standing in the driveway. They don't know that they're doppelgangers yet. And then they are actively trying to break into the house. Uh, You've already got someone on the phone with the police. At that point, I would start to try, at least try to go into a defensive mode of okay, how am I going to escape? That's the biggest thing for me, number one, is how am I going to get out? Where are my exits? Uh, what's the best way to do this? And two, if it does come down to a fight, what is the best way to defend myself? What's readily available? What's in the home? Um, Something that I found interesting was at no point in this movie did anyone pick up a knife or a stabbing weapon. Um, Or there are several points where when they're running through the streets, especially toward the end when they're taking shelter in the ambulance, there's a police car right behind them that probably has a shotgun in the trunk. And no one thought to go look through the police car to find, uh, you know, upgrade their weaponry. Uh, But I accept that this was not an action movie. Maybe if this was a zombie apocalypse, that is exactly what would happen. Um, But this is much more meant to kind of slow things down and draw things back and and show just the, um, I think, humanity that's underneath not only our ourselves but any um, you know the the tethered as well and how we really have a responsibility to them even though we didn't know they existed we didn't understand these conditions were real but that doesn't negate the trauma that these people went through and needing to kind of accept and come to terms with that and um, deal with that and be accepting of that um, so that's that's kind of where I would be at where I would Try to be as uh, understanding and, and open lines of communication. But the moment things were to turn violent, um, I would want to try to start coming up with solutions of how to get out of that situation. Whether that means run or defend, um, I mean, that's where the fight or flight response comes in. That is right. where I think my brain would be at that point.
0: I think. I think it might also too come down to like. The because I think uh, with the excuse me, with the exception of our good friend Frank over at the better half, I think not a lot of people would know what to do in the case of like, you know, a zombie apocalypse or stuff like this, because like if I had a doppelganger that walked up and looked like a junkie and had scissors and was wearing like red and like for some reason, like. Fingerless gloves, like I I don't know, like I I would be kind of like confused as to like what's happening. I would just be caught off guard. But uh, you know, we've we've seen it very rarely, but it does. There are elements of pop culture that people can take into effect to bring into real life. Like people can take mythos and try and act them out in real life, and you know. those those tragedies they they end really not well for those involved. You know you look at the look at James Holmes from a couple years ago where he went to a theater and shot up at shot up a theater at, during the dark night rises midnight screening and when the police finally called him, you know he says his exact words were, "I'm the joker." and you know so i think that we we can take this take these these kind of elements of fantasy and bring them into reality but again like i don't know like if i was ever caught in this world or like if if elements of this film leaked into real life like i don't know what my response would be like obviously it would be kind of like winston duke's like We'll talk this out like gentlemen and that doesn't respond. They just kinda of stand there instead. It's like, All right, it's on now.
1: <laughs> That's a fair Point. And and I, I don't want to make it come off being like I would just be ultra violent and just react that way right away. That's not how I don't think that's a good way to solve any kind of situation. Um, but I agree with you. There would definitely be some confusion and you would want to try to to work it out. Um, and I um, I want to talk about when we are You know, later on in in the movie and things start to kind of unravel a bit and we're learning more about what's actually going on. And we see um, Adelaide go back into that House of Mirrors that she was in all those years ago. And I love how it demonstrates just how she's changed even the, even in the last like 24 hours. Uh, Like when the owl jumps out at her, she just takes it right down with the, (laughs) with with the poker. She doesn't even hesitate. And I was like, and then uh, she's going around and she's going deep, deep underground. And as she's doing this, I was like, Oh, we're going to see these tunnels now that, that this opening sequence is talking about. All right. And then she gets on to this, this very long escalator, this, times square disney store worthy escalator and she's heading down uh deep deep down uh which realizing once everything is kind of revealed and we learn that these tunnels are where a lot of these tethered had been created and then abandoned there didn't seem to be many security measures in place maybe there was a locked door that i didn't know about or maybe just the way they were designed in general they were never meant to get out but there didn't seem to be any way anything stopping people from going down there to get in or people coming out except a slowly moving descending escalator and i never saw an escalator going back up So maybe they just anticipated that no one would ever leave once they got down and maybe the tethered never walked fast enough. So they tried to go up the down escalator. They would just forever be falling on their faces. Um, But we see Adelaide go down there and that's kind of where this final showdown takes place and where we get to hear more about from the tethered's point of view, what's been going on and why, uh, they've kind of risen up and are are basically trying to take over the world at this point.
0: Yeah, and you you said something kind of about like the tethered as villains a couple minutes ago that I I think goes really well with kind of this this climactic uh, version that until you had said it like it didn't even really kind of click with me that you know maybe this is kind of a theme of the film. Uh, But you kind of talked about how the tethered and these these, you know, shadow people, I feel like they're it's interchangeable. But you talk about how they basically, you know, they're just kind of tossed aside and they're they she even says in the in the finale between the two of them where she says, you know, uh eventually like you know this project was just abandoned we were just forgotten about i'm almost kind of curious if it's a play on maybe how we treat our vets because you know i've heard a lot of people my wife works in like medical the medical field and like she talks about just you know dealing with some of the the like the va and just kind of like the the way that our vets kind of get treated with like, you know, healthcare and stuff and mental health as well, kind of with, with those things. And, you know, we see that there's 22 vets that die every day from suicide here in the United States. So I'm almost kind of, kind of curious if that could have been a theme predominantly woven throughout the course of this film. Obviously when you're looking at, the opening text, and then this kind of like underground world of the the tethered. It it kind of almost is like this like uh, this like government kind of keeping secrets from us. Kind of voice, and I think even the use of NWA's of the police kind of drives that force all the little bit further. But I'm almost kind of curious if like the the grandiose. Message of this film is like how we end up treating our our vets or, you know, people, our elders even to to a lesser extent.
1: I think it definitely could be, and I'm I'm happy you mentioned the, the elders as well, because uh, I saw that, I mean, day in and day out with uh, nursing homes and rehab facilities all across the country. Uh, there are plenty of people that just get forgotten. Um, one of the patients that I saw routinely said that he had been in a nursing home for over 10 years now, and I never— saw really much family come visit him and, and uh, outside of the nursing home, he didn't seem to have many other friends and and these people just feels like they get kind of forgotten about um, much like the tethered in this films. So I definitely think there's a, a connection there. Um, What I really, I don't, I want to say I enjoyed seeing it. That just sounds bad, but the, the kind of the final battle between Adelaide and the tether uh, was I think really well done. I love that they brought in, um, you know, called back to that uh, dance routine that they had done. And it really became like this beautiful, like cat and mouse game of um, our Adelaide. So well shot. Yeah. Like the, the directing was phenomenal. The, the cinematography was really well done calling, um, showing uh, back and forth between her actually dancing and then them fighting and how the tether was just, kind of moving back and forth really smoothly and easily and getting away. And then finally um, she was able to, to get the final, you know, blow in and um, then kills her really brutally um, mm-hmm. with, uh, with her chained hands and then is able to unchain herself. And um, that kind of leads us into the climax of the movie. But I think that scene was really well done. And it's just for her, I feel like it was, um, years and years of fear and anxiety finally being realized and then released by getting rid of this person that has haunted her for so long. Absolutely. And I think that that's the the
0: theme of kind of overcoming your fears is it's such a beautiful journey to get to go on her with because you kind of like that's such a uh, you see it in the beginning with her kind of going to the beach for the first time. And then even when she's in Jason's room, kind of, you know, tucking him in, she sees the drawing of, you know, who is this? And he's like, well, I don't know. And then that kind of leads to her opening up about this experience to Gabe. And then it just kind of goes again to that evolution of, The extremes, like how far would you go to protect the ones you love? How far would you go to protect the ones that you care about? And Adelaide, I think, has one of the most beautiful, like true beautiful journeys of this film because we just kind of see the extremes that she's going to go to and the acceptance of uh, just wanting to kind of move past this part of her life. And there's a, during that scene, there's a there's a random scream that she just kind of cries out that it, it doesn't sound like a I'm trying to move kind of scream, but it's more or less one of those ones where she's just kind of aggravated that she can't get over this point in her life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think you're absolutely right there. And uh, I do want to speak about the um, the very end of the movie and and the revelation that's made there, Um, which I will say maybe just because I go to the movies too many times. But I had had a suspicion because in the very beginning of the movie, you see her come face to face with the doppelganger and then the scene kind of cuts and then she's walking out. Um, but you don't see which Adelaide is actually walking out. And so right from the beginning, I thought, I feel like there's something there that they're not showing us. um, What really went down in there and which Adelaide are we actually seeing now for the rest of the movie? And I kept having that feeling throughout the film, uh, not only with Adelaide, but the other doppelgangers too. And I just, I kept waiting for one of the family members to attack their own because they thought, thought that there was a um that they were a shadow and i really thought that when we were watching the news reports i think they showed one of the shadows putting on a jacket and i started to think oh man what's going to happen when they start like wearing the clothes of their doubles like you'll you'll, you would never know they could just take their place uh and that ended up not really being a, a huge point in that way um, but then seeing this, this revelation that the Adelaide that we followed the entire movie, uh, is actually a shadow herself who's been living in, in our world on the surface.
0: Yeah. And again, like I still don't know how I feel about that. Like, I don't know if I'm okay with that or if it's one of those things that it just kind of seems like a cop out on me. Like, I feel like I could kind of go either way. and. Uh, I'm going to kind of say that I'm going to meet like right in the middle. Like there are, there are problems that I have with this film and I think I'm a little bit more of a horror guy than you are. But basically I, I think that like this film has a a lot of like horror tropes in it, but I kind of feel like they're easy to forgive and I feel like the the ending of this film, to whether or not she's a shadow or not, kind of is 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 brilliant because it's it plays on like Inception, but it's also kind of one of those things where it's eh, like it's it kind of embraces those horror tropes as well. So I, I'm kind of curious to see. I hope we don't get another like film set in this universe that like Jordan Peele is going to keep producing original content. Uh, But, man,
1: that ending. Well, let me ask you this. So do you think that she had been putting on an act throughout the whole movie or in her entire life? Or did she genuinely forget what happened and what she did and she thought that she was the real Adelaide the whole time? I, I want to say that I think she
0: kind of had forgotten like we 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 saw kind of the there's a scene in the beginning where after this whole experience happened she she had talked about how uh, they were meeting with the, like a, a counselor or something it was it was him and the parents and she they had been talking about like how she had like developed like PTSD after this thing and look when you're PTSD I think there's a common misconception like it, you don't have to go to war like you can be into a car accident or be raped or you know even be beaten to an inch of your life like there's so many different things that can trigger PTSD that I, I think that in some way shape or form that she had genuinely forgotten it and all of this kind of like all of this had kind of basically served as like a rushing back point for her to where overcoming it allowed her to come full circle with her
1: PTSD and really remember everything. I totally think that's right. And I think um, I like that you said that uh, and this movie really addresses it well, too, with. Uh, Adelaide's father in the beginning where he's like, oh, you know, she she wasn't in Vietnam. She didn't go to war. Like, what, what's going on? Uh, but it can really be triggered or, or brought on by anything, any kind of stressful, traumatic event. Um, for me, I, I've had negative reactions to ringing phones for a long time. I still do, because as an EMT, a ringing phone meant to me, I got to get up, I got to go. And it's very hard to train my body to not have that natural visceral response whenever I hear a ringtone now, um, which is why I don't really have ringing phones around me. My phone is is kept on vibrator. If the ringer is on, I, I have uh, more fun ringtones for it. Um, but even work work phones are are kind of the worst because they do have that just like office dial tone that you will hear. Uh, so it's it's can be difficult and it's it's challenging. Um, but I like that uh, this movie addresses that and it really it it flips my my feelings of these characters just really on its head because now it's like. I've been rooting for this Adelaide for so long, this whole movie, and now you're telling me that she actually did something really horrible. She basically stole somebody's life uh, and imprisoned them down below. And then what's even crazier to me is that means that what was going on down there was so horrible that our human um, Adelaide uh, basically forgot that she had been a human and now only had the tether idea in her um right down even to the way she talked uh so there's it, it's bring ma- makes me feel a lot of complicated things and i i don't know how to feel anymore because you know is she a decent person now that she was able to live and and get married and have a family and and be good to that family um I don't know, because all of it really was just a lie and uh, was built up in, um, you know, it it stems from this horrible act that she committed uh, years and years ago. So I think I need more time to really kind of ponder and think about this because it's it's a philosophical question as much as it is uh, just a, a plot and opinion question. Absolutely. So that's actually where we're going to stop
0: right here for this. Uh, we'll do an extended cut uh, of this like diving into like a lot of the, the theologies and a lot of the themes and, and just there's so much here that I think walking out of it I knew that we weren't going to be able to cover it in one full episode. I think Endgame is going to be the same exact way. <laughs> so Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and rate this film, and then we're going to uh, plan later in the year for an extended cut uh, of this episode and the themes and stuff along those lines, maybe even commentary. But you guys, we're not done with Jordan Peele's Us just yet. So Dan, on a scale of a 1 to 5, what would you give
1: Us? I'm actually going to give this two ratings. The first rating, uh, I'll give it a 4.5 out of 5, just my general opinion of it. The second rating, it's actually going to be out of 10. It's going to be how this rates as a horror movie in terms of scariness and uncomfortableness, and I will give that a solid uh, 7.5 out of 10 for horror factor. Uh, Overall, very good movie, very scary, um shows me a lot of things that I hadn't really seen or experienced before, and I'm a big fan of the horror genre in general, so it was really nice to feel a lot of the emotions that I was feeling as I was watching this movie absolutely and i I'm so excited to kind of
0: dig a little bit more into this film walking out of it uh one t I see it with a friend of mine, like we're just like you know. I, there's so much here that I feel like you can just kind of keep going back into and like pick and pull apart things. And that's one thing I really admire, as I said earlier about Jordan Peele's work. And so I'm actually going to also give it a, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it a 4.5 as well out of five. I think that it is a very smart film does lose a little bit of points just in my book, just because it does embrace some of the horror tropes, which adds a layer of, un- of predictability to it but it also has a lot of like genuine scares it's got a genuinely good story it has a lot of amazing themes that it embraces the soundtrack to it is phenomenal we didn't even start talking about it and also at the same time there's just a lot of really strong performances in this that i think that this is going to be one of the strongest contenders for best film of 2019 that I'm really looking forward to. So uh, again, 4.5 out of five for both of us. But if you guys have seen us, what did you guys think of it? Make sure that you guys comment below and let us know. And Dan, where can people find you online, my friend?
1: People can find me right here on this show doing, movie reviews. I'll be back on um more and more and I know we are anxiously awaiting endgame which like Josh said will be a, a very big episode for us. So I'm looking forward to that. Cannot wait for
0: that. And uh if you got uh, you guys can find us everywhere Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Apple podcast. Or wherever you get your podcast from, and YouTube as well. Make sure that you guys like, follow, and subscribe to us, so that way you guys never f- miss a hope-filled moment. And if you guys uh, like what we stand for, consider being a supporter on our Patreon. Whereas for little as two dollars a month, you guys can dictate the movies or comics that we talk about right here on the main podcast feed. You guys can also get uh, exclusive content right for the. Early, uh, right right for the uh, Patreon s- supporters, you guys can get early access and more. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters right now, Michael Schaefer and Larry Mormon. Or you guys can pick up some swag and uh, uh, check out our Etsy shop as well. All the proceeds that we make from that go back into uh, producing content and resources for uh suicide prevention so without you guys there is no show dan thank you so much man thank you this has been a blast as always all right until next time remember to keep talking nerd talking hope speaking nothing else and always watch out for your doppelganger
1: and culture, artist-owned, fan-supported.